morning. This is our first week in a new sermon series called When in Doubt. And during the course of this series, you supplied the questions. And I want to thank you all for whoever went online and shared very openly and honestly some of your struggles or doubts or skepticisms of faith or some of those that you've heard from people around you. I just really appreciate that honesty. And together, we're going to look at these questions and wrestle through what some of those answers may be or how we can understand these better. And you might think, well, pastor, how in the world are we doing this together? You're preaching, you're standing up here on stage, and we're sitting and listening. And we do want to make it as interactive as possible. And so as Corinne mentioned, we're going to be doing uh, some more sermon question and answer after these sermons uh, than we usually would at other times. And today is no different. So you'll see on the screen behind me, there is going to be a QR code and a link. You don't have to necessarily copy this down now. We're going to give this screen to you and this information at the end of the sermon. But I I do want to encourage you to be active listeners as we work through some complicated and and complex issues together. And if you have a question in mind, you can write it down or make a note of it in your mind. And there will be an opportunity for you to share those questions again anonymously after the sermon is done. And I did say that you supplied the questions, and it's a bit of a half-truth because today I supplied the first question. And we're going to talk about, is the Bible trustworthy? Not that this is an active doubt of mine, but I think it's a very important and necessary starting point. Because as we do work through these questions together, I'm going to be pointing to the Bible as an authoritative source and something that I'm hoping will be persuasive and informative and make a difference for why we should believe certain things to be true. And in order for that to, to hold any water, then we also need to know why we believe the Bible is trustworthy, if it is at all. And while I may have been the one to put this question down, I have had some conversations that make me feel comfortable knowing that there are some questions like this that you may have in your mind. Is the Bible trustworthy? Is it reliable? Is it really the Word of God? And I am looking forward to exploring these questions with you this morning. I would start by affirming that the Bible is necessary If we are going to understand a supernatural, holy, perfect God that is above and beyond what we could even hope to comprehend, then more than a little bit of help is going to be required. As we are natural, broken, limited human beings. So if we are going to know or have a relationship or understand the character of God, then it's going to take God to reveal that truth to us. He needs to be the one to communicate what is true to us. It does not work the other way around. In order to make this point, I want to play a little game, and I'm actually going to need two volunteers brave enough to come up on stage. Seth, there we go. Actually, when I was practicing this, I I, I assumed Seth would be one of my volunteers, so you're... You're acting just the way I thought you would. Anybody else want to come up with Seth to play this game? I need one more, one more brave volunteer. And if you don't raise your hand, I'm going to tell you to come up. So you better be, you better be careful. I see that hand. Roger, come on up. Thanks, Roger. That was, that was wonderful volunteering from our leadership team chair. <clears throat> right? You volunteer, voluntold sometimes. As uh, Seth and Roger are coming up, I'm going to explain to you the game. Uh, it's going to be very simple. I have hidden an object behind that closed door to my right, to to your congregational left. And all I want you to do is tell me what that object is, right? 
So I've hidden something in that room, and you have to tell me what it is. And you can use any knowledge, like you can know a little bit of what might fit in that room or what might not. You know a little bit about me, what kind of things I may choose to hide, but you don't know very much. So, uh, so I'm going to give you a second here while I grab a microphone, and I want you to simply guess what's on the other side of that door. Hey, 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 can't go behind the door. That's cheating. You have to guess. Probably some music stuff. Some music stuff. Okay. Uh, Star Wars item, maybe a lightsaber. Ooh, a lightsaber. That would, that would have been great. Okay, hang out right here. Don't go anywhere. I'll be right back with my item that I hid back here somewhere. Let's see. All right, here we go. I had actually hidden my, my, my childhood teddy bear named Paul. And yes, I did name my teddy bear after an apostle. I was bound to be a pastor. And uh, Paul's about to turn 35 years old. And I got him when I was four, so you guys can do the math. Uh, pretty old. So here, here's my question to you. Follow-up question, Roger. Uh, you know, what difference did your uh, opinion make as to actually affecting the truth of what was hidden on the other side of that door? Zero. Right. Seth, uh, you might have desired something to be true. Like, you might have hoped that there was a, a, a freshly baked apple pie back there. Your hopes and dreams and desires, how much did that actually affect what was behind that door? It didn't. It didn't. Absolutely correct. That's the whole point. And because you guys were such good sports there is a small gift here. This game was rigged to fail. You were never going to win. But your winner is in my book, so here's a little gift card for you guys. Both, why don't you give them your appreciation for coming on up here. And playing the game, what in the world has Pastor hid behind the door? Here, we'll just let him have a seat. Let me lie down. That's fine. What's the point? The point is that in order for us to understand accurately and truly what would otherwise be hidden, we need somebody on the other side who can see and know what the truth is to reach across and to let us know what reality is like. Revelation is required. We can't discern it or guess it or hope it or conjure it up. We need God to let us know what he is like. We can't do it on our own. And God has revealed his character to us in different ways. One way he has revealed his character is through creation, which is a point that always plays better in the summertime when it's beautiful outside and not the bleak midwinter. But as we look around at all the things that God has made, we learn about who he is and what he has done and what God may be like. Our experience in relationship with God is also a way in which he reveals himself to be a certain way, how he has been faithful and true and loving and comforting. And as we walk with God and he has, he is active in our life, we learn more about him. And of course, the most direct revelation, that name above all names, Jesus, the son of God, God in flesh came down to our level past that barrier, and revealed exactly and directly what God is like. But the written word is required for us to properly make sense of all these other forms of revelation. The Bible then allows us to properly interpret our life experiences and the beauty of creation to make sure that those subjective experiences are in line with what God is truly like and we don't misunderstand. And for everyone, 
who do not have the privilege of personally walking and talking with and encountering Jesus, God in flesh. We all need now a written account to understand what he was like and what God revealed through the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Revelation is required. The Bible is required. That's our starting point. But is the Bible trustworthy? Or, if you're skeptical, is it a convenient, mistake-ridden religious text designed to make us believe certain things that may or may not be true? And in order for us to grapple with some of this tension, I want to look at three claims that the church has made about Scripture and to see if these claims are reasonable and realistic and if the Bible is indeed what the church has believed it to be all of these years. The first claim of the church is that the Bible is inspired. The church believes and has taught that the Holy Spirit inspired the biblical authors to write what they did and when they did and how they did and what a great number of authors must have been involved. It's a bit wrong to say that the Bible is a book. It is much more an anthology of 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New And these books were written over the course of approximately 1,500 years. It was about 1,100 years from the beginning of when the Old Testament was written till the final work was completed. There was a 400-year gap, and then another 100 years in which the New Testament documents were put down on paper, or papyrus, as it were. And what you have with so many different books and so many different authors over such a huge amount of time is you have incredible internal accountability. The fact that you have all of these books from so many people of different backgrounds over so many different ages and eras, and yet there is this uniformity and cohesiveness of message shows to me that this is a document that had to have someone other than human beings involved in the making of it. There is this internal accountability that you don't see in many other religious texts, notably the Quran and the Book of Mormon, which had one singular person claim to have all the authority and all of the information from God. As soon as there is one and only one person that has all the truth, then I am skeptical. The Bible is a document that is unlike that. Yet inspiration should be seen as cooperative as opposed to mechanical. (laughs) Riker's having a good day. Inspiration needs to be seen as cooperative as opposed to mechanical. What do I mean by this? Well, we would have a misconception of of what it means for the Bible to be inspired if we think that the Holy Spirit just took over the biblical authors and and, and dictated every last word and and verb and tense and sentence and grammatical point to the point where they were just a robot writing down what God wanted them to write down. That's not the proper way to understand this. There are instances in which God speaks directly in this way, and they're highlighted for us in Scripture, normally through prophecy, where it would say, thus says the Lord, and then we know we're given a direct word-for-word message from God. But those are just particular times. More often than not, when we read Scripture, we read human authorship with human creativity, 
and different writing styles, personal stories and experiences coming through. This is a human work with the Holy Spirit overseeing everything. The theological word would be superintending. The Holy Spirit was cooperating, overseeing, guiding, and protecting the human authors so that we could have confidence that the finished product is the Word of God. And this guiding and inspiring work of the Spirit included the process of a brand new church of Jesus trying to recognize properly which of these many documents were truly inspired and which of them were not a process that we refer to as canonization. If you've ever thought of, well, why do we have these 27 books in our New Testament and not more or not less? That was a process that was ongoing and took a lot of years. But it was important for us to know that the the church was not doing anything to these documents. They were not bestowing upon these documents, okay, okay, I am now going to give to you the right to be inspired scripture. That church was not doing that. They were instead trying to recognize the evidence of an already inspired document and so that they could know that it is trustworthy. The Christian canon was not formalized until Athanasius, who was the bishop of Alexandria, listed the accepted inspired documents of the New Testament in a letter in AD 367. That's about 330 years after the life of Jesus Christ. So there was a long time, and all through that time, as these documents began to be written and used and circulated in the early church, there was hundreds of years where they were trying to faithfully discern which ones were inspired. And the early church used three criteria to properly recognize inspired documents. They first asked, is this document have apostolic authority? Was it written by an apostle, a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or was it written by an eyewitness or a follower of an apostle of Jesus Christ? And so Matthew and John and all the letters of Paul would have come directly from an apostle. And yet even other gospels like Mark and Luke were written by those who were following closely an apostle. Mark was following Peter and Luke was following Paul. They had apostolic authority. The second criteria was they asked, does this document follow the rule of faith? Is it in line with the traditional teaching that has been handed down from Jesus to the apostles, now faithfully through to the church? And if the document lined up, then it would continue to be recognized. And if it was different and full of some heresy, then of course it was not. And the last criteria was, over the course of time, has this document been widely used by the church? in their worship services, in the preaching and teaching of the Word. And as the church used these three criteria over the course of many years, it created an almost unanimous consensus as to which books ought to be included in the canon of Scripture. And the main significant disagreements were not over a book that was excluded that some people wanted to include, but the major disagreements were actually over some of the books that made it in that people wondered if they should be in or not. So there just is not a lot of secret documents that the church has tried to keep hidden that they believe is inspired. The canon was a faithful process of recognizing which books were truly inspired. So hopefully, now we've given some good reason for why we can believe the claim that the Bible is inspired. 
But as all of these points will make, not only today, but through the rest of our series, to believe this requires faith. To believe that the scripture was inspired by the Spirit is a faith statement. And that is one that ultimately is up to you. The second claim I want to explore that the church makes is that the Bible is inerrant. Inerrant, without error. The EMC statement of faith, which is also our church statement of faith, says that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. It is inspired by God and is without error in all that it teaches. It is the final authority of, in matters of belief and conduct. So what does it mean to say that the Bible is without error or is inerrant? Does it mean that there can't be any grammatical mistakes or historical uh, mistakes or, or dates are a few years off or, or scientific mistakes that don't line up with what we've discovered? Well, that's not at all the claim that we say that we're making when we say the Bible is inerrant. There's a helpful definition from Millard Erickson, a theologian. He says, Our doctrine of inerrancy maintains merely that whatever statements the Bible affirms are fully truthful when they are correctly interpreted in terms of their meaning in their cultural setting and the purpose for which they were written. So the Bible is truthful in all that it claims to be truthful about. So the Bible is not a science textbook. The Bible is not a history textbook. Uh, the Bible is not an end times chronology of what's going to happen 3,000 years later with certain people in history. The Bible is making theological claims about who God is and about who we are in response to that. And so whenever the Bible affirms something to be true when we properly understand it, there it is without error. And so we need to let Scripture speak for itself and not get caught up with the minutia of what inerrancy may or may not mean. Yet even if you accept this definition, which tries to get to the heart of the issue, there will be those who will have potential issues with inerrancy. Some of those will be textual issues, like there are a lot of scribal errors because the documents we have for the New Testament, we don't have any of the originals. Those have been lost to time. But we have many, many, many different reproduced copies. In fact, there are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that have been cataloged today. Over 5,000 different times in which copies have been made of copies of copies of copies. And over the course of that time, there have been some errors because I would like to see you sit down with pen and paper and copy something 100% accurately. But here's something interesting. Because there are so many copies, it is actually a strength of Scripture, not a weakness. Did you know that the second greatest manuscript testimony from a document that dates uh, around the New Testament time is Homer's Iliad. And there are fewer than 650 copies of Homer's Iliad today. And we have over 5,000 copies of portions of the New Testament. And what these many different manuscripts do is they highlight the different scribal errors. Because there are so many of them and the mistakes are made in different places, we can compare and contrast and have a very clear understanding of what that original document would have looked like. It is a very high manuscript witness. And the errors are small in nature and easy to find. In his book, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel uh, quotes Norman Geisler and William Nix, some scholars who say this, the New Testament, then, has not only survived in more manuscripts than any other book from antiquity, but it has survived in a purer form than any other great book, a form that is 99.5% pure. 
So we have an abundance of evidence that shows that the copy that we have today is pure to the original, overwhelmingly. But there also are some questions of authenticity and authorship. And this is where the Old and New Testament really seem to, to be different beasts because the Old Testament is, is thousands of years older and it comes from a different tradition. It comes out of the oral tradition where Israelite elders would call around younger generation of Israelites and then they would share stories like in the beginning. And this stories that were important about their history were passed down from generation to generation to generation until beginning at the time of Moses and all the way up until the time of the exile, those 1,100 years, these stories and this history and the prophecies were written down and formalized into the Hebrew scriptures. But the New Testament, which is much more recent, enjoys almost unrivaled closeness to the events in question. So if you're wondering about the authenticity of the stories we read in the New Testament, consider this. The Gospels were written in approximately between A.D. 60 and A.D. 90, which is only 30 to 60 years after the events that they record, which is incredibly close. It's within the same lifetime of those who were firsthand eyewitnesses. If you consider, again, other documents from around the same time, you went to history class as a student in high school and you learned all about Alexander the Great. Well, the earliest biographies of Alexander the Great were written more than 400 years after his death. So these events happened and he died and 400 years later, the stories were written down. And yet those biographies are considered historically trustworthy and are used to teach in schools today. So if we can trust a document written 400 years after what happened, how much more trustworthy is a document written 30 to 60 years after the fact? We can have a lot of trust in these documents. For authorship, the early church was fairly directly connected to those that wrote the New Testament. One great example is the Gospel of John. So when we say that, well, I believe that John wrote the Gospel of John because the church has always taught that. You need to realize that the early church had very close ties to the authors of the New Testament. There was a gentleman, his name was Irenaeus. He was an early church father, and we know he existed in human history. We have many of his writings still at hand today. And Irenaeus was someone who was a disciple of Polycarp. Polycarp is also someone that we know was a person in human history, and he is most well known for his martyrdom for his faith that was recorded. And we have very few of his writings, but we have some of his writings left. And Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. And the Apostle John was a disciple of Jesus Christ. So we have an unbroken string of historical and textual evidence from Irenaeus to Polycarp to John to Jesus that helps us feel very trusting, not only that John would have written that gospel, but that what he has written is true. So when we say the church tradition teaches, that's not just some pie-in-the-sky hope. It is historically and personally grounded. There'll be others who look at inerrancy in Scripture and have some historical issues to pick with it. They will look at problems with dates and chronology, even though we have established that the Bible doesn't claim to be a history textbook. And while it might not be a textbook, the Bible certainly does give us history. And when it, where it gives us history, we want that to be accurate and trustworthy. But the Bible will record history, history sorry, differently than we record history today. So if you go back to the Old Testament 
and you're doing your devotions because pastor says you need to read your Bible, and you get through some of those genealogies, right? So so so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat them, who begat, 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 and you're just thrilled that this was your reading for today. And you wonder, I mean, what, what if? Like, it shows how, how long everyone lived. Can we actually make dates? Can we have a chronology of this part of history? And the answer is no. Because in the ancient Near East, they would record genealogies in a different way. They were selective. They often skipped generations. The goal for them was to highlight direct descendancy and to make sure that the most important people were brought out. So you could have a a grandfather and a grandson in a line and then skip two generations and have someone else or they could go in subsequent order. And this was not considered to be an error or to be misleading. It was the way that they wrote four to five to 6,000 years ago, different than we do today. In the New Testament, we also realize that ancient biographies had different standards than our modern biographies do. Ben Witherington is a very good biblical scholar And he says that ancient biographies not only did not pretend to be comprehensive, they tended to be highly selective. And the principle of arranging material, while broadly chronological, could involve a good deal of topical arrangement of the material as well. Which means when you read a gospel, the gospel writer is not trying to give a play-by-play of Jesus' life. He has a greater theological truth that he wants to get across. And so if it works to take a story from earlier in Jesus' life and move it later on where it fits theologically, then he would be well within his rights to do so as far as ancient biographies were concerned. But today we would have a problem with that. We just can't read it with our own lens. We have to interpret it in light of the understanding of the time. There's one case study that I think is is worth talking about. It's uh, the story of the centurion who came to Jesus and asked for healing for his servant who was about to die. In Matthew 8, it's recorded that the centurion comes and asks Jesus personally for this. And in Luke 7... Luke records that the centurion sent elders of the Jews on his behalf to make the request. So we have two stories that look like they might be in error. They might have a conflict with one another. Is this a threat to the inerrancy of Scripture? Well, no. It's another example of how you would write something in ancient times. So if you were living in Jesus' day and you had someone who was important and in command like a centurion, then everything that he would do through subordinates would be accredited to himself. And so it would make no difference at all if he sent someone on his behalf or whether he went directly, it would be his request to Jesus. Recorded differently, but it is the same story and comes to the same true teaching of Jesus. And then also looking at some historical issues, there have long been uh, scholars that will point out that there is just a lack of archaeological evidence for some of the claims of Scripture particularly in the Old Testament, which was, again, many, many years ago. There's rampant skepticism on what the Bible claims to have happened in the exodus out of slavery in Egypt and then the conquest of Canaan. And yet there have been some more recent developments in archaeology that maybe tell a different story. Some evidence takes place in the city of Hathor. Hathor was a capital city in Canaan, and the Bible describes Israel as having destroyed and conquered Hathor two different times. The first time, it was destroyed by fire by Joshua during the conquest in Joshua 11. And later, it was destroyed by Deborah in the time of the judges in Judges chapter 4. That was while Hatzor was under the um, kingship of King Jabin. 
Two times this has been destroyed according to Scripture. And as they go and they dig down into the different strata of the archaeological remains at Hatzor, they have found two different destruction, destruction levels that match up with those timelines perfectly. And so I have a picture here of an ash layer that is timed to be out contemporary with the time of Joshua. Undeniable evidence that this city was burned with fire at the same era and time frame that the Bible claims so. And still others will have scientific issues with the inerrancy of Scripture or the claim thereof. They will look and say, everything we've discovered about science shows that the Bible didn't understand those things. It is untrue. But here again, we have to realize that the, the Bible needed to make sense to those who were originally listening to these words. So the Bible is based on ancient scientific understandings of science, not modern scientific understandings. It would have made no sense for God to do otherwise. So here's a quick picture at what uh, the ancients would have understood um, the, the world and the cosmos to be. It was called the three-tier universe. You had heaven above and a firmament of waters uh, above that and then the earth below. This was the three-tiered universe. And so we see uh, a lot of scripture that, that presupposes, that, that assumes that the reader understands the universe to look this way. And one such example is in Psalm 104. I'll read the first nine verses, and I just want you to see if you can pick out how there is some ancient understanding of science in these words. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lay the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds. He ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. So the psalmist is using language that is, is steeped in his own people's understanding of the heavens and the firmament and the earth below. And it doesn't have to be modern science because that's not the point of the passage. And we shouldn't allow, us to or allow it to derail us from what is truly being revealed here. What's that third and final claim that we want to unpack today? While the Bible, the church has said, is inerrant, it is uh, inspired, it's also illuminated which means that the Holy Spirit is still active and continues to work through the Word of God, making it living every time you open up its pages. The Spirit did not just inspire the biblical authors and then step away. It didn't even just continue to protect all the documents and manuscripts and the canonization process. The Spirit is still at work through the Word of God today, and that's why we should be people who read the Word of God, even all those genealogies which you can skim. I'll let, it, I'll let it stand. You can skim those. But if we are to be readers of this word, understanding its inspiration and the inerrancy, then we also need to be educated readers of the word to give the Bible its own voice. When we were talking about Revelation um, about a year ago, we set up some ground rules. And I think there's three quick ground rules that you can take into your own reading of the Bible. Ground rule number one, the message of the Bible is meant to be understood by the original audience. So don't be scared when there's ancient scientific understanding. 
Don't worry about the fact that the chronology might be rearranged creatively. Don't look at Revelation like a step-by-step playbook for the very end of days. It needs to make sense to those who were originally listening to those words. Ground rule number two, genre makes a difference. We need to know if we are reading history, because then we can know that it's giving us reliable history. Or if we're reading a biography, or if we're reading poetry with all that language, or the apocalyptic literature with lots of symbolism, that changes the way that we read. And ground rule number three, use scripture to help interpret scripture. Remember that there is good reason to have faith that the Holy Spirit has inspired all the biblical authors in creating a unified, cohesive work that can help you learn from other parts of that unified, cohesive work. So if you're having an issue with one passage, look elsewhere in the Bible to help you make sense of what God has revealed to be true. Now, because it is inspired, inerrant, and illuminated, the Bible holds the final word and authority in all matters of faith and practice. So no matter who you are today, no matter what type of faith you have or don't have, we all have four sources for our theology Four sources of how we understand or believe God to be. And these sources are Scripture, which we talked a lot about today, tradition, what the church has taught throughout the years, reason, what I can comprehend and use my logic to discern, and personal experience, what my life has taught me, when God has spoken to me, when he's urged me, when he's comforted me. And depending on your personality... You can rearrange these things, and some sources may be more important to you than others. So if you come from a high church background or a Catholic background, then the tradition of the church is very, very important. Or if you are someone who is is very logical, then your ability to reason will really have a huge impact on what you believe about God. Or if you're emotionally driven, then perhaps it's those experiences and those stories that mean the most to you. And you can rearrange these all that you want except Number one, the first and the last source of our theology has to be the Bible. We have to hold everything else up to Scripture. What tradition says, what our reason thinks, what our experience has displayed, everything else is held up to Scripture because revelation is required. We don't know for certain on our own what is hidden on the other side. God makes it known to us. And there is very good reason to have faith that the revelation that we have been given in the Bible is reliable, true, and trustworthy. So remember that when in doubt. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've gone through a lot of information. There's numbers and dates and percentages. And God, at the end of the day, I pray that we would be a group of people who recognize our need for you to reveal your character to us, who recognize your desire to do so, mainly through your word. And I pray that as we go from here and we open up our Bibles, that we would do so seeking to give Scripture its own voice, to learn from you, to learn from the revelation that you have given us. And if anyone comes and asks us, why do you believe, why do you have faith that this is the word of God, that we can have very good reason for believing the way that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen.